For more information on Ancient Dragon Zen Gate, please visit our website at www.ancientdragon.org. Our teachings are offered to the community through the generosity of our supporters. To make a donation online, please visit our website. Good evening. Thank you all for being here, and thank you, Megan, for inviting me to speak again. Um, so yesterday, on our way to the temple um, for Sashin, I was reading aloud to Maddie in the car, Dogen's Ocean Mudra Samadhi from Beyond Thinking, the Tanahashi volume. And I had been resonating with, because um, David Ray had brought up uh, the bejeweled ocean of emptiness. So I had felt a, a resonance with the having randomly been reading that passage before we came. Um, anyway, that, that little piece is weird, and I can't pretend that <laughs> I understand it. Um, but it's just been percolating in my mind since we read it. Uh, so Dogen focuses that, that passage on a few words that are spoken by the Buddha. So Buddha says, elements come together and form this body. At the time of appearing, elements appear. At the time of disappearing, elements disappear. When elements appear, I do not say, I appear. When elements disappear, I do not say, I disappear. Past moments and future moments do not arise in sequence. Past elements and future elements are not in alignment. This is the meaning of the ocean mudra samadhi. I'm not going to exegete this passage or Dogen's analysis of it, but I'm going to talk about some things that have been swimming around in my mind when thinking on this ocean mudra samadhi. Maybe some of it will have resonance with what Dogen or Buddhists had in mind. I'm no expert. We're going to let these words from the Buddha allow us to drift into a bit of a more poetic space. In preparing this Dharma talk, I didn't know how to call on my usual ways of thinking and talking about practice because, well, I have felt out of practice. I've been very busy in the last few months. And to be honest, my practice has sometimes felt like it's been on the back burner. Sometimes life gets in the way. I'm going to talk about the way that life gets in the way. And hopefully we'll come to see that this getting in the way is already exactly as it should be. So I hope you'll indulge me in this bit of a more poetic register, sometimes philosophical and a bit psychological. Um, and maybe even that afterwards you'll share some of your own reflections on being in and out of practice and the ways that life gets in the way. So when I think about what it means for life to get in the way concretely, it's often that routines go out the window. Our defenses are down. One is thrown into the kind of bare bones experience of what is possible given the current conditions. We get thrown into the myriad things as a myriad thing. Sometimes this is due to scarcity of energy or space, when one is too busy and tired and they're trying to just get through. Sometimes it's because one is confronted with a tragedy, it becomes difficult to carry out the dull maintenance of everyday life. 
And sometimes it's due to celebration and excitement. One is too caught up in the occasion to step back and detach from it. In each case, we're brought face to face with our attachments, our grasping, our desires. Our tradition teaches us that practice can and is happening at any moment, even in the midst of these experiences. And I think that this teaching is essential and maybe the primary piece of wisdom we're trying to come into resonance with. This is what I hope to talk about tonight. I don't want to talk about it from the perspective of the good practice, but instead from the perspective of being caught up in beings, of falling out of practice. What happens when we investigate delusion? Is it possible that there is something to be learned here about the Dharma? I'm not talking about just what comes out of the experience of delusion once you're back in good practice, the what doesn't kill you makes you stronger variety, but what happens right in the middle of it. Let's start with the hypothesis, supported, I would think, by our Zen teachings, that it is paradoxically exactly in these moments when we feel most out of practice that we're also open to realization. We find ourselves particularly thrown into the myriad things as a myriad thing. And when this happens, it seems there's often a dual experience that arises. When we're caught up in the moment, which is to say focused on things that we are not actually present to them or witnessing them in their emptiness, sometimes the practice we've been doing in recent times leading up to these moments will come to catch us. The muscle memory of Zazen may come to step in and remind you to let go for a moment to genuinely be present with what's happening. At other times, though, the least practiced self comes forward, one that honestly doesn't seem like it has ever sat zazen, or been to therapy for that matter, or really done any of the work one has perhaps spent many years doing. In reality, it's probably a bit of both of these, or maybe somewhere between. The point is that there are times in life when the routines fall away, when we are disjointed, Our routines are everything. They hold us. This includes but is not limited to zazen. Our routines are the forms that hold our lives. But sometimes life happens. It asserts itself into rhythm and reminds us of the disruption of rhythm that is just as essential to reality as its intentional and careful patterning. Since perhaps it seems to us like we are more fundamentally within disruption, and it is the careful patterning that is difficult for us to create and maintain, we humans tend to focus on discussions of careful patterning, on the cultivation of good practice. We tend to focus on wholeness, since we assume that we primarily operate from a place of dualism and discrimination, which we take to be the opposite of wholeness. Wholeness is essential, of course, But I also wonder whether it allows us to look away from what is taught to us by the chaos of ordinary life, from what we are meant to find in the subtle truths of our desires, which, so long as we are alive, will be with us. What I'm saying is there is something very paradoxical here that is more complicated than a movement from fractured, discrete being into wholeness. To think in this way is to describe a linearity to realization. I think this linearity gets something confused, or better, makes something confusing appear less confusing than it truly is, which may be why by the end of this talk I will have been able to articulate. So let's think about how this thing of being alive 
gets in the way of all our careful planning and good practice. When we think about the ways that life asserts itself and demands our attention, the way it tempts us to throw away our practice and become totally caught up in beings, it's easy to focus on traumatic examples. When there is a tragedy, the experience of time is ruptured and the previous modes of meaning making threaten to fall apart. Our practice is put to the test. But this same rupturing happens with deeply happy experiences and celebrations too. Sometimes something is so beautiful that it ruptures the experience of time. Things contract and expand all at once. And we see momentarily outside the confines of our ordinary experience. We see ourselves and our loved ones momentarily as merely an incarnation of something much older and deeper, something beyond the specificity of their and our highness. Is this being caught up in delusion or is it realization? Realization happens in the practice of spiritual discipline. <coughs> But it also happens in the unpracticed space of delusion, as our examples show. Our tradition teaches that the thing we are seeking is not only to be found in ascetic self-deprivation and the extinguishment of our attachments, it is also to be found right in the middle of beings. <coughs> I think, oddly enough, it's easier to focus on the former while mostly living in the latter, such as the way of deluded mind. The question then inevitably becomes, how do we stop hating attachment and desire? That is, it, it is not our, de our desire that we want to extinguish, but rather our desire to extinguish desire. This is a paradox. That is the deeper ache, the more subtle paradox of being a being, addicted to being, addicted to the self, relying on it for survival and constantly fearing the threat of its dissolution and yet also constantly tending towards self-annihilation, towards non-being, towards the undoing of the boundaries of the self that we can experience so that we can experience our not only I-ness. This is what dancing is. This is what singing is. The philosopher Martin Heidegger calls this paradoxical condition in the largely tragic tradition he speaks into the uncanniness of being. The word we translate as uncanniness is connected for him to this literally unhomeliness, being not quite at home in the world. This strange violence of being both a part of and apart from all that surrounds us. For the German idealist Schelling at the turn of the 19th century, this condition is the mark of finite life, which can never get back behind its essence to something that is unconditional, to something that is truly stable and sure and one's own. For Schelling, one's own essence is merely lent to us, and this is what he calls the sadness that clings to all finite life. In Zen, we don't have to see the situation in only the tragic register. The situation we're describing is emptiness. It is that kind of emptiness that we don't have to learn from in texts or in practice because we're born with it. It is the condition of birth, the most fundamental part of our being. This memory that I already wasn't this, and that I one day no longer will be this. The knowledge that everything is like this. This knowledge and this condition embeds this strange thing called desire, which simultaneously encourages us to rush as quickly as possible, running headlong straight into non-being, 
and to shrink back into stagnancy, to refuse to be otherwise, to fear not being. We live in this strange kind of indecision, wanting to both merge into indistinction, to become otherwise, and to maintain our fictional yet real, if only temporary and partial, relative discreteness. That is, I don't think we live in a discrete state and merely cling to our dis distinctness and fear our own dissolution. This doesn't explain the vast majority of our actions in the world, from sex to eating to laughing to dancing to drinking. All those things wise religious folks have been calling passions and desires for a long time now. This is the thing that I think gets confused when we talk about desire as if we start from fractured discrete being and we move into non-duality or non-duality is understood as wholeness. This is a matter of the difficulty of words and phrases to be sure, but it's worth pressing on because just like our desires, we will not get out of words and phrases. Take this from the Zen teachers themselves who spent so many pages describing the uselessness of words and phrases. <laughs> Let me put it another way. When I read things about how we all fight over and above all for our own survival and for our own attachment to ourselves and in order to keep up the act of the sovereignty of our I, I always feel like we're only telling half the story. This would be a simpler way of understanding how desire works. I want something I don't have. I want it, this particular thing, because I want wholeness, which I don't have. In fact, I'm afraid that there's something irreparably fractured about me on a constitutional level, and I believe believe that if I get this thing, then that feeling might go away. I delude myself into thinking that what I'm afraid of is this particular thing. This is a way of avoiding the uncertainty that is much, much bigger than the thing I'm concerned about. Focusing on this fear allows me to maintain my identity. It allows me to grab hold of a fiction of myself and of the stability of what is outside me by making up a story about them and their relation to one another. In this way, I avoid the fear of death, which is understood both as some literal event that has yet to come, but is certain to come eventually, and as something that is strangely already present in all things at all times. The not knowing, the not being, the not tangible reality within which the knowing, the existing, the tangible are situated, Everything we've said about desire is true, but we've yet to address the strange fact that we actually set all these things up for ourselves. It's full well knowing that they're un in order is not the state of doing. If you talk with people or yourself long enough, you'll see that we're rarely totally unaware of the ways that our attachment. are embedding a kind of future crash that we're expecting goes between having more or less ecstatic effects out and probe the limits of my aliveness. Perhaps when we're young, we set up the experience of desire in a way that meditates on the literal register of the metaphysical question of life and death. Perhaps as we age and learn more about the concrete experience of birth and death, we let go of the need for it to be so literal. 
But the thing that is underdeveloped when thinking of desire as primarily a matter of my own attachment to myself is the fact that pursuing desire is also actually an attempt to radically alter the self that I'm attached to. It is a genuine instance of emptiness. When the desire blows up, and it usually blows up if it's dramatic enough and unattainable enough, and therefore clearly a metaphysical fear rather than something about an actual thing, the self that came before it is no longer available to it. It is confronted directly with its own emptiness, and it must adapt and survive. It must pick up the pieces of itself and make something new. These experiences, whether catastrophic or ecstatic, shatter the confines of the self, showing us that aspects of ourself we thought were substantial, essential, or unchanging are actually plastic, malleable, flexible. We pursue these desires as a mode of survival, but survival is much about letting go of and incorporating new I-ness as it is about maintaining some discrete sense of self. Never listen directly to what a desire says it wants. It has a strange way of always also wanting its opposite. How can we tell the difference? Why do we want to tell the difference? I guess the point I'm trying to circle around is that there's nothing that we can do that is not caught up in ceaseless practice. Yet practice manifests itself as much in that ideal experience of zazen that we attempt to cultivate in calm stillness as it does in the difficult patterns and habits we're trying to break. The difference between the two is not so easy to identify, and we might do well to be suspicious of our own attempts to tell ourselves which is which. We can choose to purify practice of its darkness, its obsessions, its delusions, but this is only to tell half the story. There are only loops and patterns for us sentient beings, and the disruption of our rhythms only happens by way of the introduction of new rhythms, even the most chaotic-seeming ruptures. We cannot end suffering, since the annihilation of suffering, of loops of addiction and delusion, would be the annihilation of life itself. The bodhisattva stays amongst beings. We Zen practitioners stay amongst beings. What does that mean, given that it cannot mean the annihilation of suffering? What is the paradox of the bodhisattva vows? Let me put it another way. It seems from this angle that the story that we move from our understanding of ourselves as discrete beings, which is a fiction, to the truth of our wholeness and non-distinction is itself often a convenient delusion that allows us to hold on to the idea that things are ultimately whole, and it is only our limited perspective that mistakes it for discreteness. I think non-duality is something much stranger than this. Talking about non-duality in terms of wholeness is to turn non-duality right back into dualism. It doesn't matter if we humans start with discreteness and therefore wholeness is the thing we're trying to grasp, the thing that's out of reach. This is a linear way of understanding something which is not linear. As Buddha says, past moments and future moments do not arise in sequence. Starting from discreteness and going towards wholeness is starting from wholeness and going towards discreteness. They are not different. Non-duality is a thing that undoes this distinction for us, not so that we can glimpse what is whole, but so that we can stop trying to think of the worth of ourselves, of others, and of this world in terms of its wholeness or partiality. Take all that I'm saying with a grain of salt. 
simply the meanderings of one being who's out of practice, out of tune. We have no choice but to be caught up in beings, simultaneously tending towards our own individuation and particularity in a strange process of dissolution and reabsorption, coming together and falling apart in the flow of beings. Yet I would venture that what can be taught to us in times of out of tuneness is the fact that things are always changing their tune. The flexibility we are confronted with in times when practice breaks down is essential. It teaches us that the conditions of the practice are always changing and that they can be changed. We, we can become attuned differently. Sometimes the thing that saved us becomes a thing that is our obstacle. Desire keeps us honest. Distrust any claim to the unchanging truth of any teaching, ritual, or practice. Life gets in the way, again and again. And when it does, it teaches us that the process of learning is not about learning the right steps. This learning is how to surrender gracefully to changing rhythms. It's about learning how to dance. When life gets in the way, we realize that the composition and the decomposition is coming together and falling apart right here and now. Let's revisit Dogen's citing of the words of the Buddha. Elements come together and form this body. At the time of appearing, elements appear. At the time of disappearing, elements disappear. When elements appear, I do not say I appear. When elements disappear, I do not say I disappear. Past moments and future moments do not arise in sequence. Past elements and future elements are not in alignment. This is the meaning of the ocean mudra samadhi. We might think for our purposes on this passage as it helps us to consider the question of non-duality. It does not matter whether we begin with wholeness and move to discreteness appearing or begin with discreteness and move to wholeness disappearing since past and future elements are not in alignment. It is a delusion to focus on the one at the expense of the other. Yet, what have we learned about delusion? It is a Dharma gate, of course. Language turns us over again in another paradox. Either path will do. All paths will do. Thank you. Um, I'm, I want to talk about anything that's on your mind, but I'm also really curious to hear about people's experience being out of practice, things they've learned about themselves in those times, but I welcome anything that's on your mind. Thank you. That was denser than a black hole. <laughs> there was a lot there. Yeah. You just sort of like chew on that for weeks and come out with different stuff. Yeah. That was good stuff. Thank you. Yeah. No, my practice is being out of practice. That's <laughs> why I'm here. Yeah, I, I, that was extraordinary. It just was really... I want to get a copy too because there was, there was so much in there. But I, I was thinking of Michel Foucault and Blake's idea of holy desire and, um, you know, uh, dancing 500 people at three in the morning. 
having those most you know some of the most exalted experiences of my life you know mm-hmm. in that kind of a situation you know mm-hmm. um, it just and and yeah and being out of practice you know what, what's practice is there a practice <laughs> you know um, what's not practice um, and it's yeah, I think you should submit that to Lion Troy. That, that was <laughs> a very beautiful piece of writing, and there's a lot in there. And, and uh, I'm just, I, I just feel, you know, like proud for you. <laughs> you know, maybe that sounds silly. No, it doesn't. But it's just beautiful. It's just wonderful to see this fruit that has developed and is so ripe, and mm. it's just gorgeous. So thank you. Thank you. That's, that's so fun. Amen. That is wonderful. That is really wonderful. And this idea of being out of practice, and all of it is practice. But we need to be out of practice to be to be in practice to be out of practice. In practice. <laughs> that was very poetic. Cynthia actually talks about being out of balance against the background of perfect balance. Mm. But you know. Which is which. <laughs> so thank you so much. It was lovely. Yeah, I felt like a, a like sort of like you know if you've heard of Patty Smith mm-hmm. <laughs> reminds me of like a little riff by Patty Smith at the beginning <laughs> of some song, you know, and then mm-hmm. continuing into this sort of ecstatic piece. Mm-hmm. Although I kept thinking about going down with the ship mm-hmm. on the ocean. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> That, that this is being out, mm-hmm. being out of practice. Mm-hmm. It's really great. I'm still I wondered where the precepts are in this mm-hmm. and the paramitas mm-hmm. and practice. So yeah, thank you. Very, very thought-provoking. <laughs> um, you know, Dogen talks about um, when you are only half present, be fully half present. You know that we, when you're when we think we're out of practice, we we are in practice. There was a wonderful little um, promotional postcard that we used to have on our refrigerator mm-hmm. at the old Ancient Dragon that's in storage somewhere of Suzuki Roshi saying, even if you've only come once to Zen Center, I know you will be back. I am quite sure of it. And um, it's a little bit like the koan that um, Jerry was presenting a few weeks ago. You know, mm-hmm. where are you from? You province. Do you think of it? I always think of it. <laughs> we are we are fully where we are. Mm-hmm. And once you have started the practice, um, you're never you're never you're never it's never far away. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's always right here. <laughs> um, I tell my students who are writing an essay that, you know, just to start it a few weeks ahead, they think, you know, oh, well, you know, I, I'm not doing anything on it, but, you know, I'll have to finish it later. But, but you're fin- you know, it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's there. So that's, mm-hmm. there's, once we've set something in motion, mm-hmm. it remains, I think, in motion. Mm-hmm. And, uh, so your judgments on that are, are just I mean, maybe your judgments.
David is stand up. Thank you so much for that talk, uh, which I really appreciated. Uh, it's wonderful to to see how Zen and your and your study is being becoming more and more integrated with the you know divinity school studies that that that, that you're doing. Maybe maybe the I mean I, I heard some you know sort of well not exactly tragic sense of life because you know you said that's 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 not the whole thing but I, but I really felt the sort of the bite and the sting of life maybe that's the place for the for the precepts and the paramitas to to enter mm. for some reason you're talking about the, the the ocean I'm reminded that um, the Atlantic Ocean owns a pair of glasses of mine I was. <laughs> I lived in Massachusetts. I was with a group of people. I was with a cult-like organization, actually. And, and, and I walked out into the Atlantic Ocean, and the Atlantic Ocean just simply reached up and grabbed my glasses and yanked them off my face. And <laughs> I don't know. Some, that's got something to do with the bejeweled ocean of, in, of emptiness for me tonight. <laughs> but thank you for your talk. Thank you, David. <laughs> yeah. I'm sorry, you go on. Isn't this the samadhi that was from which the Avatamsaka Sutra came? Yes, that's right. Yeah. Anyway, you're following that incantational line. Hmm. You were going to respond to David Grace, one of the words. No, no, I was just going to say that this was fun to write because I was, you know, I don't actually know much about non-duality at all, <laughs> but beyond my own experience of it, I'm, <laughs> but I interpreted a lot of it through, you know, just my long study in the Western tradition and Western philosophy and, and Christian theology in terms of like wholeness and the idea of oneness that is so important in that tradition. So I was like, it was fun to have a playful place to kind of translate some of these concepts into the the idioms I know better um, because that's not encouraged in academic work. The comparative religion is really a hot topic. Like it's not, it's not something you're just going to do. <laughs> so this is a place where I really get to think and talk about what I see as a lot of resonances that I can't really bring forward in my academic writings. Amid all that playfulness, one of the things I most appreciated was the valorizing of desire. <laughs> That desire is, it's not about getting rid of desires, it's not being caught by it, and yeah, that's our life. <laughs> so, thank you for that. Mm -hmm. A liberating desire. Mm -hmm. so there is a liberative quality to your incantation. <laughs> and facing desires is where the precepts come. Mm. Um, your interest in this idea of being out of practice um, has struck a chord with me because I've been interested lately in um, just reading a little bit by some people in a Lotus Sutra organized practice organization, Risho sure. Kosaka, which was uh, an old friend of ancient dragons, Gene Reeves, who was a translator and explicator of the Lotus Sutra, very fine one. Was uh, after having been dean <laughs> at the Divinity School from Akka, hmm. moved to Japan to study the Lotus Retreat practice of Vishen Kosuka. 
And while they have some, let's say, ritual, religious practice, you can copy the Lotus Sutra or chant the Lotus Sutra, really their focus is to just jump straight into doing the Buddha work and being bodies and embodying Buddha by constantly. The, it's not a practice, it's that life is about um, caring for others and being present mm. for others. And I, I think after reading a little bit more about that, I, I've come to feel more and more that really Zazen is just mm. is being here, uh, being available for others and being uh, not just making it more possible mm -hmm. to be available for others, but being here and prepared to respond to uh, need and suffer mm -hmm. as, as it appears. Um, so there's, you know, so there are always opportunities for us to, to practice mm -hmm. and always opportunities, opportunities for us to do the good work of interacting with other people in a caring way, trying mm -hmm. to benefit them and um, whatever they need, mm -hmm. uh, not necessarily what we think they need. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, I think that uh, that that's a very inspirational idea for me, especially because um, uh, you know a question around Zen practice is always how a very small portion of the people in the world have the time and resources to sit on pillows mm -hmm. hours each week and to take time off for sessions and so on. And they they are able to live a good life, mm -hmm. a good life. Mm -hmm. and um, I think the Rishikotsuka people are, are sort of a reminder of that. Mm -hmm. uh, this is not as as uh, and it, it, and as Dogen would say, this is uh, and maybe perhaps in forgets uh, his words. This is not a rehearsal. Mm -hmm. <laughs> We are sitting down and being Buddha, and we will get off the cushion and we will be Buddha with other people, mm -hmm. caring for them. Mm -hmm. It made me think of um, my experience uh, just. Art making in general, there's the feeling of falling out of creativity where you don't have any like good ideas or what you've been doing sort of isn't feeding you know the, the way anymore. And it made me think of Suzuki Roshi um, talking about beginner's mind, and he says to keep the weeds of your practice and bury them and they'll grow into you know right practice but you know it's funny to think you know from our perspective that he wouldn't want to keep a weed because it will grow really quickly mm -hmm. but maybe that's the point that they actually grow really fast that if you're willing to not discriminate against a weed and a plant mm -hmm. that like a weed from this perspective is actually the, the fruitful plant of a different practice mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. in, in art making you know when you fall out of love with one form it's the perfect time to start something new and 
be a beginner again and try something that you have to figure out what the question asking looks like. You know, it's not about being good at it. It's about learning how to ask questions again. Um, and then when you go back, you'll have learned something new. So maybe the weeds of one practice are, you know, the fruitful harvest of another practice and vice versa. So mm-hmm. if we have enough gardens, then <laughs> we're sowing seeds all around. Yeah, some people have heard this before, but a friend of mine told me about this quote, and we've talked about this before, of like, said our practice, our life actually, mm-hmm. is like shooting an arrow at the ground. You can't miss. Mm-hmm. And, just, you know, and it's not just on the sky, but it's right in the ground, right in front of you. You know, and I think this is what you're kind of getting at. Mm-hmm. You know, you take this particular moment in this particular action, and it's not one way or another. Mm-hmm. You know, you didn't like learn to shoot that you know, arrow perfectly. You just put your life energy right in this moment mm. with all of its dancing mm. and delusion and awakening mm. and kindness and love. I also like that you highlighted fear mm. as a driver. Mm. And, you know, fear drives a lot. Mm-hmm. <laughs> But it also is like any kind of almost desire, this positive, mm-hmm. this aliveness, mm-hmm. you know, that we can be afraid of fear. But if you make friends with it, it doesn't have, it, it's detoxified, you might say. Mm-hmm. For some reason, I remember this, this image in my mind that came yesterday when we were talking, I can't remember when. Exactly, but during the conversation, like the afternoon conversation yesterday, for some reason, some of the things that someone said made me think about this moment that happened on our wedding day a couple of months ago, where I was getting ready, and, you know, slowly I had just been getting ready, and the house becomes filled with people, like so many different people who I had no idea were planning to be there (laughs) in that moment, but it was like everybody needed to come and see me, get ready, and this wasn't happening to Maddie, <laughs> but it was happening to me, and I, and the whole wedding process had been a, had been a process of learning about, like, lack of self in the sense of trying to be open to the fact that this means something for many different people, and they needed to be what they needed to be, and this is for everyone, um, and so I had, I've been conscious of that, though I have to say at this moment, I was a little like, oh my gosh, because I was so scared. Mm-hmm. And I had been, the day before at the rehearsal, I had been weeping the entire rehearsal. So I was terrified <laughs> that I was going to weep the whole time and no one was going to hear all these like, beautiful things that we had spent so much time thinking about and trying to put together. And we were getting ready. And anyway, finally I had been, I was kind of like almost dazed and I was like, I need everybody to just not stand in here while I'm like actually putting the dress on. Like I need to, I need to be, I need to be present for a moment and like actually understand, like see what's happening. And so it was like we had we got most people out of the room. It was just my mom and I and our really close friend. Um, and we went to put up the dress and the 
the back of it had been um, like the one person had altered it. She had sewed in the the hook, and so the hook wasn't available, and we couldn't get the last button hooked or whatever. And my mom was like, just like all of her personality was like gathered in this moment, and she's like, literally, she's so worried, she's so afraid that it's not gonna happen right that she's like about to rip the dress, like she's over there, going, like going to make the problem like a hundred times worse than what it was. And I was like trying to just be like, mom, mom, can you just like, can you just look at me, like, can you just be with me right now, like. It's going to happen. It's going to be okay, you know? And her friend was like, okay, I think we're going to sew you in to the dress. <laughs> and then we had this weird moment where my mom realized she had been sewn into her dress on the day of her wedding. Oh. And so we were having this strange, but, but it was just this, like, it was so trippy to have this experience with all this energy focused here. And my mom being so my mom, like, just going to rip the dress in half because she's, like, afraid that one button won't be closed. But it was, like... I don't know, I just thought of what you're saying right now because I'm like, it was also perfect because that's her, like, and that's us. And that was like the messiness of us is that, is that exact moment. And in her way, you know, the second the performance started, she was in her own and she was dancing all night, but it's like, as you were too. Yeah, as I was too, but all that energy, I don't know. Wow. <laughs> that's wonderful. Thank you so much for this talk and for everything and 